Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here. As always, 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 thank you so much for tuning in. Today we have a very special guest. And you've probably heard of this person because he's been on the real big shows, like Joe Rogan. And so we are honored to have Dr. Peter McAuliffe. But we'll get to that in just a second. But first, let's thank our sponsor. Hey, speaking of people getting kicked off the internet in crazy times, this is one of those, if you don't have your own website, you can get your content, your message, whatever it is that you do, your business out there. You need to be using a domain that hosts your own website. That's why I use Bluehost, RadnRaySenior.com slash hosting is the link. I'll link to the show notes. I use it for all my website, and I've got a bunch of them suckers. So RadnRaySenior.com slash hosting. Go ahead, sign up today because you might get kicked off of Twitter even if you're on the right side of the issue today, you might be on the wrong side tomorrow. So don't depend on social media to get your business out there. It's a great tool, but you need more than that. That's why you need a website, ryanracenior.com slash hosting. Okay, let's get to our guest. Dr. Peter McCullough is an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, managing the cardiovascular complications of both the viral infection and the injuries developing after COVID-19 vaccine in Dallas, Texas. Since the outset of the pandemic, he has been a leader in the medical response of the COVID-19 disaster and has published papers covering this, which I will link to in the show notes. He's been all over the place. He's been on The Hill, America Out Loud, Fox News, as I mentioned, Joe Rogan. He testified at the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs and also the Texas Senate as well. Um, I will link to this again in the show notes, so be sure to check it out and listen Last week, or last episode, we had on Gregory Zuckerman. This week, we had on Peter. Um, and so we're hopefully bringing on a variety of opinions. That's what I've always wanted with the show, and we're excited to do that. Let me know what you think. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd love a five-star review. And with that, let's get to the interview. Well, Doctor, it is lovely to have you on this New Year's Eve. Thank you for taking the time on <laughs> New Year's Eve to record this interview. I appreciate it. How are you doing today? Great, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Okay, well, let's get into it. Um, one of the things when I started this podcast um, a long time ago, so I, I said I wanted to have people on who would have good conversations, different points of view, and this has worked out quite well. So I think last episode or two episodes ago, we had on Gregory Zuckerman with the Wall Street Journal who wrote the book, A Shot to Save the World, um, and we talked about COVID, vac uh, about COVID vaccines and mRNA stuff from his perspective. Uh, we're uh, covering and reporting, and now we have on um, uh, your, yourself who has your opinion as well. And so it's kind of good to kind of get a variety of opinions. So let's let's start with COVID nineteen and just kind of go back in history just a second here. From your perspective, the research that you've done, what have we learned over the past two years? Maybe some stuff that we didn't know early on that now we now we view differently. Um, some mistakes that were made. Um, what are what have you learned and seen since the outbreak? Oh boy, there's so many lessons learned in terms of pandemic response um, from uh, the very beginning. I think one of the biggest lessons learned right off the bat is risk stratification. And what I mean by that is that the viral infection is very different in different people. And one of the biggest risk stratifiers is age. So the virus is a breeze for children. It really is. It's less than a common cold, yet the virus is so rough on the elderly. It, can be fatal. I mean, so age is a huge risk stratifier. In general, people over age 50 have over a 1% risk of hospitalization and death. And over a 1% risk is usually enough to take some action in some way. 
The other big risk stratifier I've been so impressed with is obesity. Obesity. And we know now that the lead cytokine or inflammatory factor triggered by SARS-CoV-2 infection in the human body is interleukin-6. And interleukin-6 is produced within fat cells in the human body. So people who are heavier have a far worse time with COVID-19. On top of that, obese people, the respiratory mechanics are more difficult. There's oftentimes sleep apnea, restrictive lung disease. Uh, and so obesity is a huge risk stratifier. So I'd say age and obesity, uh, very important. And interestingly, men always do worse than women, always. So there's something about androgen, male androgens, that the virus interacts with in such a way where it really preys upon men far more than women. In fact, one of the treatments, believe it or not, in Brazil is anti-androgen uh, therapy, just short term. And then after that, everything else is just kind of added on, meaning uh, diabetes, heart disease, uh, lung disease, kid kidney disease, uh, chronic cancers. And along the lines of risk stratification is ascertainment of mortality. And what we've learned is that more in every data set, and CDC and the Italians have done a really good job on this, uh, more than 90% of the deaths occur in people with other illnesses that, that essentially are, are fatal or could be fatal in the causal pathway to death. The average age of death is roughly 83 in the United States, so it's far greater than uh, average life expectancy. And a great case example would be uh, former uh, Secretary of Defense Colin Powell. And Colin Powell uh, died in his 80s, right at 83. And he had multiple myeloma, which was terminal, so a form of cancer. He was fully vaccinated, and then he got COVID. And you know, as it said, is you know he died of COVID or he died with COVID. But as we sit here today, if we've had um, 800,000 individuals that are COVID fatalities, in reality, it's about 80,000 who actually really died primarily of the respiratory illness. And otherwise they were uh, in a sense, perfectly healthy people, 80,000. So that number is something we need to keep in mind. So risk stratification and cause specific mortality, I think are two very important kind of lessons learned from this viral and pandemic. So if you go back to March 2nd or 3rd of last year, uh, I was on a podcast with a buddy of mine and we were talking about COVID and I said, I said, we're talking about traveling to Spain to run with the bulls. And I said, listen, I'm not worried about it. It's not beyond 35 of the time, 34 time, whatever it was. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm overweight, but generally speaking, it seems not to impact people like this. Now, my kids at the time, I said, well, my kids might be impacted. Now, if you flash forward to two weeks to when we shut down, I had read an article that no kid under the age of 12 had died. So I was like, okay, I, I had to drop that position and generally had a position of what you just described um, now, with that being said, I had people tell me that it was too early at that point to really know where this thing was headed. Um, and, and, but to me, it's been pretty clear if you've kind of followed it from China to Iran to Italy that that this was pretty apparent early on. Was I just was I overly optimistic that I just happened to get lucky, or have we kind of missed the boat and not reported accurately on who this will impact um, going back to March of last year? There are multiple groups. A group that impressed me, I believe it was Oxford, had a lot of risk stratification data. Our CDC does as well. And one of the, the challenges with respect to reporting mortality, even looking at the literature, people always ask me, for instance, I go on the national news a lot. They'll say, Dr. McCullough, is this a, is this a less lethal strain of the virus than another strain? And I'll say, well, you know, the strain of the virus, you know, matters some, but what, what really matters, what determines life or death is who gets early treatment. 
And so um, I reviewed today on national TV, uh, a National Institutes of Health autopsy study, the first autopsy study from the National Institutes of Health. It was published on the ResearchGate preprint server. And it was the first authors, Chertow and colleagues. And they described 44 people who died of COVID-19 and they had thorough autopsies. Interestingly, the average time spent before they came in the hospital was nine days. And there was no mention of early treatment, none. Uh, I anticipate these people got nothing because if they got something, it would have been mentioned. And they received a, the, you know, a typical mix of drugs in the hospital, remdesivir, dexamethasone, tozolizumab, anticoagulants, barcetinimab, and, and the, the inpatient drugs honestly are, are minimally effective. And they all died. And the, the showcased finding was that the virus was alive and found in every tissue of the body, the brain, the heart, the bone marrow, lymphoid tissue. The one person who was immunocompromised, he had, I think he had a transplant, um, but it was found 230 days later. It was alive. It wasn't dead virus. It was alive. And so one of the um, uh, important conclusions is no wonder people feel sick after COVID-19. No wonder there's long COVID syndrome. No wonder people intermittently test positive. No wonder people intermittently think they've gotten it one, two, three, and four times. And we know with the variants, the wild type alpha, beta, gamma, and delta, that effectively it was one and done, that we didn't get the infection a second time. Everything changed with, with uh, Omicron. And Omicron was described uh, in November of uh, 2021, and it didn't readily become apparent uh, till after December 10th in the United States. It was obvious that Omicron was basically blowing through natural immunity. And I had gone on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast on December 8th, and I was telling America that it was one and done, that you know it's you we'd get durable immunity. And sure enough, it wasn't but a week later, emails poured in, hey, I got COVID. How did you said you can't get it twice? And I said, well, that held for the prior variants. And now we have Omicron. We've learned something about Omicron that's very, very interesting. It's the most mutated form of the virus. It's got 30 mutations in the spike protein alone, 10 mutations in the receptor binding domain, three deletions, one insertion. We virtually never get insertions. So it's a wild mutation peppered around the receptor binding domain. So the virus cannot physically invade the body like it used to. So it's going to have a milder syndrome. And then a paper broke out of Hong Kong University this week that basically demonstrated that Omicron replicates 70 times faster than Delta. It's an unbelievable, it's a warp speed in terms of its replication speed, but it can't invade the body. So it becomes a tremendous nasal infection. It can provoke some fever and some symptoms because the virus brews at such a high level. And then a paper came out of the um, African Research Institute. First author is Khan and colleagues. And everything is on preprint, by the way, because it takes months, if not years to publish peer-reviewed data. We are reliant on the very first release of the data and we evaluate it as such. And what the Khan paper showed, interestingly, is that Omicron went immunity. Of course, you get full immunity to Omicron. You'll never get it again. It's like a 14X immune response. But also there's a considerable back immune response against Delta. So Omicron, you can think about Omicron competing against Delta out there. Delta has been a very strong outbreak, very powerful virus that uh, you know, it was more transmissible, uh, was uh, infected, invaded the body easily. And Delta was the hardest one, I think, for us. And now you have Omicron, which uh, can out, out replicate by speed Delta, and then it can shut the door on Delta in terms of immunity. So someone gets Omicron is not going to get Delta. 
So it is amazing what's happening. The Delta pandemic is being shut off, basically almost like a switch. There is some overlap. And then we're having a skyrocketing of Omicron because everybody's participating. The previous immune are getting it. Uh, it's typically a mild syndrome. It almost feels like a mild viral malaise. I personally had it. It felt like, it felt like honestly, it felt like I took a COVID-19 booster shot. It was so mild. Uh, no treatment needed. Uh, the vast majority of COVID recovery patients, is by the time you get treatment, you even try to get treatment, it's completely over with. Next in line are the vaccinated. The vaccinated are getting Omicron, but it's very well tolerated. And I think like the naturally immune, it's, it's a fairly easy ride if one is uh, is fully vaccinated. And then last is the COVID naive, neither vaccinated nor COVID recovered. I think Omicron can be a bit rougher. I've had to treat some patients a few days of treatment, nobody close to being hospitalized, which is wonderful. I've had one patient, she was older, sicker. I was worried about her nearly 80. I've had her a long time. I went and pulled the for a GlaxoSmithKline monoclonal antibody, which is Sotirivimab. Sotirivimab is uh, a 500 milligrams of a, of a fully humanized monoclonal antibody directed against a glycoprotein moiety on the spike protein. So it is directed against a non-mutated, not mutated part of the spike protein. And it's our only one left, by the way, that would cover Omicron. Uh, Lily is out and now Regeneron is out based on modeling studies showing the spike protein has effectively evaded both of those two monoclonal antibodies. Most, most health systems, by the way, have just completely pulled the monoclonal antibodies. I think it's a mistake. Uh, we saw in the news cycle yesterday, Surgeon General Joe Ladapo, a wonderful doctor, believes in treating COVID-19, pushing the federal government hard, get monoclonal antibodies, get the GSK product down to Florida where we have our vulnerable seniors. The GSK product was approved in May of 2021. We've had seven months to get ready with Operation Warp Speed, GlaxoSmithKline, huge company, you know, every resource available to the federal government. Let's get the antibodies rolling to where we need them. Okay, you covered a lot of ground there. So let me let me um, ask a question that I've I've heard asked a lot, and I've never heard a good answer. Uh, I'm sure you, you might have it. How do we know who has Omicron, who has Delta, who has the original? Is that something in the PCR testing? How do we know um, where these are spreading and, and which patient has um, which variant? The only way to know which variant is to actually do uh, genomic sequencing. And that can only be done by research labs and departments of community health. So what we do is we rely on CDC forecasting. The CDC has a system called NowCast. And NowCast uh, basically is combing the information around the world. It's like, it's like a weather forecast to try to tell us what we're gonna have. And so NowCast, as of December 18th, uh, formerly predicted about 73% Omicron. They recently backed that off, uh, depending on what the data come in. The data will come in in arrears from our departments of community health, and then we'll know. We've had 99% Delta for months now. So it was clear everybody you know, in the fall basically had Delta. Now we have the shading in of Omicron. And there is an important question because they're distinct syndromes. Delta is a far more severe syndrome, far more deadly than Omicron. And when people initially present, they present about the same. So doctors are struggling. And our communication networks, we're talking all over the country, we're talking all over the world. And I can tell you in the Northern US, I still think it's a lot of Delta. In the Southern US where I am in Texas, it's almost all Omicron because we're seeing such mild cases. So we need full genomic sequencing. But the, your listeners will understand that uh, some of the data identifying Omicron actually came from the PCR because 
PCR test, the polymerase chain reaction relies on what's called primers. The primers are small segments of RNA that the test looks for in the nasal swab uh, specimen. And the primers code for typically four uh, proteins uh, in a, for part of, of four proteins in the virus. That is the spike protein, the nucleocapsid, the envelope protein, and the polymerase. And different manufacturers use different primers. Some manufacturers use a couple primers. But what was found out on the border of Botswana, uh, where Omicron was initially discovered, it was discovered, by the way, in fully vaccinated travelers who weren't really sick at all, the young people. So it's clear Omicron arose in the vaccinated. We cannot blame the unvaccinated uh, at all for Omicron. And what was described is what's called S-gene dropout. S-gene dropout means that the primer for the spike protein basically didn't light up on the PCR while the nucleocapsid or another primer did. So they knew the virus was there, but interestingly, the spike protein wasn't showing up. And what we found out is the spike protein is mutated in the segment of RNA code uh, where a primer would have been lit up by a PCR test. So uh, interestingly, if tomorrow we actually had a multiplex PCR that ran against, let's say, three or four primers, including the spike protein, by identifying S-gene dropout, we could actually report whether it was uh, Omicron or Delta. And I just don't think the in vitro diagnostic uh, companies are going to get there that fast. But boy, what a useful test that'd be. Okay. The other thing you mentioned was the monoclonal antibodies. When we, my, when my wife and I uh, and our family got COVID back in August, September, whenever it was, we went and got the antibodies as quick as we could. Uh, we live in, we're, we're just south of uh, Fort Worth. So we drove up to the infusion center there and, uh, and got the vein tapped. I called it the Thanos juice because within 24 hours, I felt pretty much back to normal. It was, it was, it was crazy. I felt bad uh, for a couple hours, but then I, I you know, felt fine. Um, but if I heard you correctly, were you saying that some of these new, the new variant is pushing um, against the antibodies? They're not working as well. Is that what you're saying? Or what, did, what were you talking yeah, about? Yeah. You know, there, there was a modeling study. They came out of South Africa. The first author is Pulliam and colleagues. And the modeling studies are pretty darn good at this. Omicron, it was sufficiently mutated that the two antibodies in the Lilly product, which is bamlanivimab and ertesivimab, basically weren't going to hit the spike protein. It was going to be useless. And then they did the same type of modeling for Regeneron. That's carisivimab and inimivab. Regeneron, by the way, has been our workhorse. I've relied on this in my practice now for you know, a full year. Regeneron's been great. Uh, that's what former President Trump received, podcaster Joe Rogan, who I just interviewed with, uh, uh, he received that. Aaron Rodgers, Aaron tweeted uh, or, or spoke about me uh, yesterday in his uh, press conference. Uh, he received the McCullough protocol when he was treated. You know, Part of that was Regeneron. Well, Regeneron's out now. It's not going to cover Omicron. So we are left with GlaxoSmithKline. I'm really fortunate. Like I said, I had a senior citizen. She had more severe symptoms. I'm pretty sure it was Omicron. And we got the GSK, but they need to, you know, put all efforts in getting GSK. There are still going to be high-risk patients. As you know, the monoclonal antibodies make a huge difference. They're safe, they're effective, and they work well when we start early. Why is it that the monoclonal antibodies aren't as controversial as the vaccine? The monoclonal antibodies, you know, went through randomized trials, appropriate prospective double-blind randomized trials. They weren't large. Uh, and some of them actually failed on a primary endpoint about viral clearance, what have you. That didn't matter. The, the monoclonal antibodies actually mop up systemic virus that's invading the body. That's what they're about. But they consistently showed reductions in hospitalizations and death. It was tractable. Uh, we use monoclonal antibodies, by the way. I'm a cardiologist, and we use Repatha and Praluent. Rheumatologists use um, uh, Humira, 
or Remicade. So th these are standard technologies. They're safe and effective. They're fully human, fully uh, humanized. Uh, and so they would be non-controversial, just like Humira is not controversial. So that's the reason why the monoclonal antibodies directed against the virus is a wonderful spinoff of Operation Warp Speed. It's a wonderful product of Operation Warp Speed. You know, basically an antibody that can fight against a fatal virus. I mean, that is an, that is an innovative approach. So I give uh, the two administrations that oversaw Operation Warp Speed on monoclonal antibodies and A+. Now, what about the vaccines? The problem with the vaccines is from the very beginning, we knew we were in trouble. And I published an op-ed in The Hill back in August of 2020. And I said, boy, what a gamble this is, the great gamble of the vaccine pandemic. I mean, I knew this before they even had a clinical trial result. The vaccines are genetic. They are gene transfer technologies. And we've never used genetic manipulation of the human body on a mass scale before, never. And the genetic manipulation isn't for a good thing. It's not like it's replacing a super wonderful protein in your body. It's, it's tricking the body into making a deadly and basically dangerous, destructive Wuhan spike protein. So the vaccines are tricking the body uh, to produce the Wuhan spike protein for an uncontrolled duration of time and for an uncontrolled quantity. And we've never done such a scientifically reckless thing to the human body ever. We have no control. Once that injection goes in the body, we have no control how much spike protein is produced. Some people must take up a lot of lipid nanoparticles, maybe in the right places in the body at the right time. They must produce an overwhelming amount of spike protein. And sadly, patients die uh, a fulminant death. Uh, we know of the 20,000 plus patients in a vaccine diverse event reporting system in the US, half of which are known to be domestic. We know these deaths are explosive. They happen within about two days of taking the shot and half the cases, 80% within a week. Two papers, Rosa McLachlan showed that. We know it's a huge spike. We never see deaths after vaccines like this. You know, We have 70 vaccines on the market, 278 million shots, and uh, we get 150 deaths, not, not temporarily related to the vaccines. They have over 20,000 deaths without any safety review by our federal officials, without any transparency to American citizens. Uh, Americans are outraged. You know, now in major forums, almost everybody raises their hand. They know somebody who's died after the vaccine, or they know somebody in their circles that has. America knows the vaccines are deadly, and that's the reason why they are willing to walk off the job rather than be forced to take the vaccine. So I want to come back around to the mRNA aspect for a second, but what is your stance prior to COVID uh, or other vaccines? Because there are obviously some Americans who feel uh, vaccines might cause autism, or they don't want to give to their children for various reasons. So uh, apart from the COVID vaccine, what is your normal stance on vaccines? Normal stance is conventional medicine. I use vaccines in my practice. Uh, I've taken all the schedule of vaccines. My kids have taken all the schedule of vaccines. I did some travel to India. I took extra vaccines there. Um, safe and effective. Uh, you can't beat it. I mean, we ask every college kid going off to college to take the meningococcal vaccine, 20 million kids a year. You know, there are zero deaths with the meningococcal vaccine, zero and it's perfectly effective. We don't have outbreaks of meningococcemia in, in colleges anymore. You don't see any protests about the meningococcal vaccine. Why? Because it's safe and effective. Uh, you know, healthcare workers, we, we deal with needles. I'm a cardiologist. We have catheter, we have needles. So I could be accidentally stuck with a needle. Do you know we require healthcare workers to all take the hepatitis B vaccine? None of us have any problems. It's safe and effective. I want to protect myself against hepatitis B. You don't see you don't see protests, people, you know, submitting exemptions and going through all this stuff. I mean, you have incredible angst right now 
because people know they can die of the COVID-19 vaccines. The, all the issue on the COVID-19 vaccines has to do with the risk of death, uh, serious injury, and then permanent disability. And sadly, we have over 36,000 people been permanently disabled from the vaccines. It's like a war. And so is your thesis then or argument here, uh, it's that mRNA vaccines, the technology is not far enough along, or is it this particular mRNA uh, vaccine? Because they've been working on mRNA stuff for, I think, the what, the 70s or 60s. They've been working on uh, trying to figure out how to use these vaccines for some of your time. Um, this seems to be the first time we've, we've seen it at scale. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a, definitely the first time at scale. You know, I'm a cardiologist. I can prescribe a messenger RNA product just called Petirisan, Petirisan. And it is a messenger RNA that's considered a small interfering messenger RNA and actually shuts off genetic production of what's called an amyloidogenic protein. So we already have a messenger RNA on the uh, product on the market and it's fine. It's fine for that specific job, but it's not taking over the body cells and producing a dangerous protein. In fact, all the prior attempts with these vex, with these uh, platforms was basically to produce a normal product. So for instance, a uh, disease I manage called Fabry's disease. It's a deficiency of alpha-galactosidase. Well, it'd be wonderful to replace the production of alpha-galactosidase in patients who need it. It would, it would, it would be remarkable in terms of nerves, nervous injury, uh, injury to the eyes, kidneys, heart, be wonderful. So who would not accept a messenger RNA product that's producing a normal protein? But the last thing we wanna do is we last thing we do is install messenger RNA that produces a lethal protein, a lethal protein. We know the spike protein itself now is the killer. It's the lethal part of SARS-CoV-2. Right. And so if you were to take that, um, what would be the difference? Again, just, I'm not a scientist here. I'm asking from ignorance. What would be the difference between um, the COVID vaccine and your annual flu shot that you get? The annual flu shot is um, basically a inactivated virus. So you, it just can't do anything to your body. And so uh, you get injected with the virus, your body, the virus is outside of your cells, your body responds to it, it breaks it up, it presents, it presents parts of the virus to uh, the T cells presented to B cells, B cells transform into plasma cells, they start producing antibodies, and you get a modicum of protection with the flu shot. And the flu shot's got about, you know, about four different what's called epitopes that stimulate the antibody production, what's called uh, neuramidases and hemagglutinases. And the flu, because it has these, these kind of changes that occur slowly over time, it's called antigenic drift. There's enough time each year for the manufacturers to anticipate what's going to be the predominant strain and try to come up with a flu shot. So this year I took a flu shot and I, I read the package insert. You know, I'm kind of more peaked in terms of interest. And the lower bound of the confidence interval on the flu shot I took this year had an estimated cut of 17%. I mean, it's pretty modest. So let me tell you what, if this flu shot had any safety issues with it, believe me, I wouldn't take it, not for 17% benefit. Well, these COVID-19 vaccines, you know, we know here that the benefit with respect to mortality and the vaccines in a paper by Cohn and colleagues from the Veterans Administration, uh, over 780,000 veterans uh, who took the vaccine and they studied who died and who didn't, you know what the benefit was for the veterans under age 65 that would apply to me in the comb paper? It's only a 1% benefit. One, 1% absolute risk reduction. I mean, it's very modest. Now the protection against hospitalization is greater, but we can't know how much because the hospitalization data are rigged. 
And what I mean by that is that people who take the vaccine don't have to get routine testing in the hospital when they come in the ER, when they have uh, you know hip surgeries and things like that. Uh, so they don't get to, uh, to contribute to the case count. Whereas the unvaccinated are getting tons of testing with COVID because they haven't taken the vaccine. So it looks like there's way more hospitalizations with COVID for the unvaccinated, but in fact, they're just being excessively tested. And so the, un the vaccinated are not. So the hospitalization data are rigged, but if we looked at papers by self, by 1040, and again, by cone, you know, up front uh, with the prior legacy uh, variants, I would say uh, as biased as it is, that estimate of protection against hospitalization was about 85% protection. Vaccine efficacy is pretty solid. If we look at the endpoint of just binary upper respiratory illness, real world data, we could go to Nordstrom and colleagues uh, from Sweden, 1.6 million pairs of people, half vaccinated, half unvaccinated. Moderna and Pfizer were both about 90% protection against the, the upper respiratory illness, kind of the illness you'd get at home. However, by six months, Pfizer had faded uh, to between 20 and 30%, and Moderna had faded between 60 and 70%. So there's quite a fade after six months. Now there's 22 studies showing that the vaccines all considerably fade after six months. And the minimum acceptance criterion for a vaccine is it has to give at least 50% coverage at least for a year. And if you can't do that, um, honestly, we shouldn't take it. So the vaccines, in a sense, from an acceptance criteria for COVID-19 have failed. Now people have been told boosters every six months. And a recent report, actually an email that went out to all the doctors in the last you know, a couple of days said boosters may only last 10 weeks. So now there's consideration of an adjustment to every three months. So every three months, injections of a genetic material, giving a, a basically a whirl of deadly spike protein in the human body uh, is something that I don't think anybody can consider. It's just out of bounds. Okay. And so let's just say for the listener who's listening right now, and they've got uh, either one Johnson Johnson or two of the other ones, and they're, they're, they're thinking about the booster, um, and they've had COVID. And so kind of recapping what you've said here, if I'm getting it right, is a... Uh, you, you you now uh, um, are arguing that you can catch it more than once. Um, they if they've had their vaccine, um, they can catch it and potentially spread it. But where does the when does the natural immunity conversation come into play um, with where we're sitting at today? Natural immunity, I think, makes Omicron a milder syndrome. I'm pretty convinced of that. That uh, you know there is a benefit for having COVID with the earlier syndromes. Now, interestingly, I had alpha. I was in research. I had COVID in October 2020. I was sequenced. I had the alpha variant, the British variant. Uh, I was protected against Delta. I I went into the house of people with red hot Delta, and they coughed in my face. And you can't get you can't alphas could not get Delta. Could not get Delta. It wasn't a convincing case. Period. Anywhere described in the world where somebody who's immune from alpha got Delta. Now, having said that. Um, Omicron comes in my house, some kids for Christmas come over, and sure enough, I get Omicron. So Omicron can clearly blow past the immunity of um, wild-type alpha, beta, gamma, uh, and delta, and you get Omicron. But Omicron is a milder syndrome, and again, it shuts the immunologic door on the delta variant. I'm happy. I'm happy. I do want that additional protection. Dr. Marty Macri was on national TV on Hannity this week. I followed him. I was on Ingram Angle with uh, former Congressman Sean Duffy. And both of us kind of said the same uh, uh, thought here, that Omicron, in a sense, is Mother Nature's booster. It's like receiving a booster shot. Uh, and in fact, it's actually a far better booster shot than taking a vaccine booster. So 
what what do we look for next? And we got Omicron now. Do we have any kind of timetable for when we might see the next variant? So you, you think this has been two years and we're into whatever variant it is now. Um, do we expect more variants to come or how, how do we forecast that? The vaccines have clearly prolonged the agony. There's no doubt about it. There's papers by Neeson, by Arcevedo, uh, now Pulliam. They all suggest, listen, we're, we're vaccinating way too much. We're causing these resistant strains to come up. Now we've got a strain that can evade natural immunity. It arose in the vaccinated. The vaccination program is a disaster. And so the vaccine program is prolonging this. And the virus has evolutionary um, hit a what's called a um, an ecological uh, bottleneck, and it, Delta was dominant. And then the only way it could possibly, uh, in a sense, uh, renew itself and begin to uh, expand its uh, base of victims was to wildly mutate into the Omicron variant, and it found a way to do it. But it's only because we're vaccinating people. So now we have a situation where you're, you know there's a doubling and quadrupling down on vaccination. It's just going to make things worse. So I think if we uh, now now's a good time to just stop the whole vaccine program. The vaccines don't cover Omicron. They they didn't really cover Delta at all. So we have no benefit there. We have no data of the vaccines uh, in in Omicron. That we might as well just stop now. It's a milder form of an illness. Treat the patients who are sicker. Not have anybody else exposed to the vaccines. And let's let the kind of full robustness of natural immunity fill out in the population. Okay, I got a couple more questions. And then I have a handful of questions from Twitter we took to, as well to ask you um, for people who wanted to weigh in on the conversation. So first thing is, um, let's talk about just the larger science community. Um, this has been a point of frustration for, for me, at least, is going back to last year, we're willing to give up civil liberties and lockdowns and all this stuff. Um, you know, we have Fauci who is, I'm fine with people changing their mind, but it doesn't, he doesn't seem to say that he's changed his mind. He seemed to have a different position that has always been his position. It's kind of weird. What has been maybe your biggest frustration on, on two sets, A, with the scientific community, but then B, with people like myself who aren't scientists. And, and you know, what's, so I'm sure you've had frustrations from both sides. Um, how is how, what has been your biggest frustration, with the scientific community and then just the public at large? You know, I, I don't have any peace with the public at large. I, I feel terrible as a doctor in a position of authority that the public has actually gone through this. I thought it was wrong from the beginning. Uh, our public health officials did not organize into teams. You know, I testified in the U.S. Senate October 9, uh, uh, November 19th, 2020. I told America four teams. I'm talking about teams of real doctors. We're talking about board certified, experienced, highly published, you know, the edge players in America. You know, the superstar doctors are not at the NIH, CDC, and FDA. They're not. They're actually out in the practicing community. And they needed to call in the A team. And we need an A team to basically help America stop the spread of the virus. Turns out the best way to stop the spread of the virus is to uh, use nasal virucidal washes. That's these povidone iodine or hydrogen peroxide actually wash the nose and kill the virus there. Hand sanitizer is useless. Masks are useless. Social distance is useless. The virus settles in the nose and it needs to be zapped. That's the bottom line. I mean, they missed the boat on that. Uh, the second pillar was we needed a team on early treatment. Early treatment could have saved, and the estimates are now clear, and I'm very clear with America on this, under sworn testimony, early treatment could have saved 85% of these lives. We could have avoided 
uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths. We could have avoided millions of hospitalizations, millions. I mean, the misery of having people denied treatment and then being hospitalized and being isolated and some of them dying is just, it, it, it's a tragedy that, that historians will write about for years and years to come. The third pillar is uh, hospitalment. You know, we needed a team on hospital treatment. You know, we're two years into this. Do you know that there's no hospital in the United States that claims itself to be a center of excellence? There's no, there's hospitals are not competing for patients. They, these are patients are fully paid for by the U.S. government. You think every city uh, in the land would have a billboard up saying number one in COVID care, outstanding COVID protocols, excellence in the best overall COVID survival rates. There's no bragging rights for COVID-19. It's almost as if nobody even cares about excellence in the hospital. There's no Harvard protocol. There's no Mayo Clinic protocol. There's no Duke protocol. Hospital care is atrocious. And there seems to be no bravado in getting any better in hospital care. And then lastly, we needed a team on vaccination. And vaccination, I think, clearly could have played a role with a safe vaccine. I think limited, like all vaccines, probably limited to nursing home residents, uh, very elderly senior citizens, maybe direct daycare workers. That's it. I think with that four-pronged approach, I think this pandemic would have been closed a long time ago. If I was leading the federal response, I would have done that because I'm a single doctor and I can't cover all the bases. No doctor can. And I would have had teams, the most excellent doctors in America, and I would have shown the best and brightest that America has academically, and I would have closed the crisis. Instead, we don't have it. And I had dinner with Scott Atlas, who was in the inside uh, for several months under the Trump administration. And we went over, Scott's book is out. He's clear. The people you mentioned are not competent. They are simply not competent. They are not capable of doing the job, and the results show it. Yeah, we, we were wanting to get uh, Scott on. So, Scott, if you're listening, you're welcome to come on. Okay, one more from me and then a handful handful from Twitter. Um, when we had COVID, and I've talked about this a lot, um, our doctor for, for my wife and myself um, recommended um, ivermectin for me and hydroxychloroquine. I can't say the big words. Uh, my wife was a little bit further along, so she got something different. I don't remember what it was. Uh, we took our kids, our oldest two, uh, 13 and 11 at the time, to their doctor because they, they had it. And that doctor went crazy, like, oh, my gosh, how could you do this? What do you say, first off, maybe briefly your thoughts on ivermectin, but then what do you say to people who are in that spot to where one doctor saying this and the other doctor saying that? And, of course, we went and got the monoclonal antibodies and felt great afterwards. But but what do you do? To, what do you say to people who have differing doctors give different opinions because we aren't the experts. How do we resolve those things? No two doctors agree on anything. I'm not surprised about that at all. But I think what resolves it is what's called the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle says, listen, this is a potentially fatal disease. Uh, and we're in a mass casualty event. Hundreds of thousands of Americans are, have died. You've got one of two choices. You're going to either not give out any treatment and let the patient take their chances with hospitalization and death, or you're going to take the precaution to treat them with drugs that have a signal of benefit and acceptable safety. I think it's clear. The precautionary principle wins. I've told America, I've always treated by high-risk patients, always. In fact, when I get off here right now, I've got three more patients. I got to get some drugs ordered for them. I have always done that. I have always fulfilled my Hippocratic Oath. Sadly, doctors have not picked up the phone. Doctors have told patients there's no treatment. And those patients, I can tell you, nearly 100% of every patient who's been hospitalized and died has been denied early treatment. Okay, so we'll go through these on Twitter really quick here. Um, first, ivermectin. Uh, we've already talked about monoclonal antibodies, but ivermectin, fan, not a fan. 
limited use. What are your thoughts on that? Ivermectin is a weight-based dosing. There's over 63 supportive studies. We use 200, 400, or 600 micrograms per kilogram. It is a human drug, uh, well-supported, about a 60% overall benefit, 60 to 70%, which I think is really solid. Uh, no serious toxicities at all. And uh, I can tell you, I, I think the earlier strains, uh, wild-type and alpha, uh, were much more responsive to hydroxy, hydroxychloroquine in my view, but I have enough experience with Omicron. I got a ton of experience and I can tell you it's very responsive to ivermectin, very much less so for hydroxy. And so I can tell you right now, it's an Omicron game. It's a Omicron is an ivermectin game for uh, high risk patients. So we're going to see a lot of uh, ivermectin flowing. Okay. We have a nurse asking questions here. So I'll, I'll try to get this right. So um, myo and pericarditis, um, what are your thoughts on that as it relates to, I guess the vaccine would be the question here. Okay, two things. Let's cover one thing. Um, the very sick patients with COVID, the respiratory illness in the ICU, can have a minimal elevation in a cardiac blood test called troponin. The Chinese called that cardiac injury, and but it can happen with pneumococcal sepsis and other illnesses, and it's not myocarditis. So with the respiratory illness, it's not myocarditis. In fact, there's a paper out of St. Louis specifically, you know, scanning patients who have the respiratory illness, they don't get myocarditis with the respiratory illness. The vaccine's different. And we know in a paper by Avolio and colleagues, the spike protein, which is produced by the vaccines, directly damages the heart, directly damage heart muscle cells. And this, the FDA agrees. And the FDA has official warnings on myocarditis, says don't administer the vaccines to people under age 30 because it causes myocarditis. And sadly, people are not paying attention to these FDA warnings. The CDC had 200 cases of myocarditis in June. Right now, as we sit here today in December, we have over 16,000 cases. And we know in papers from the CDC, as well as from Hogue and colleagues, another paper by Trong and colleagues from Salt Lake City, we know that 75% or more of the kids get hospitalized with this. The peak age is age 17. It's explosive, very high cardiac troponins, dramatic EKG changes, uh, evidence of heart damage. Uh, by the uh, blood tests, uh, that, which are a hundredfold higher than that of a, a typical heart attack. It can last for months, uh, result in heart failure and cardiac death. The absolute uh, restroom exercise needs to occur. Sometimes drugs for heart failure. Sometimes we use corticosteroids and colchicine. And now we have a montage of athletes who have died on the field. Some of you have seen these videos. It's striking. I think we're over nearly 200 athletes internationally, uh, largely in parts of the world where it's mandated. And the great fear is that they have actually taken the vaccine and now uh, they're having subclinical myocarditis and uh, they may actually have symptoms, but they know their contract's on the line. If they get diagnosed, an athlete gets myocarditis, they're out for the season. I guarantee it. Your favorite football player gets myocarditis. They are out for the season, period, period. We won't let them play. Uh, they know this and they're pushing through it and we're seeing deaths at a record rate. We're seeing cardiac death like we cannot believe. And such a death was reported by Choi and colleagues from Korea, 22-year-old man, takes Pfizer, has five days of chest pain, comes in the hospital, seven hours later, he's dead. And he has a cardiac death, just like we've seen these athletes. He gets an autopsy and the heart is loaded with inflammation, absolutely loaded. Mm. Okay, two more. Um, one is why do we not hear more from people in the medical industry? So if you think about it, um, we have a handful of doctors, uh, yourself included, uh, that have varying opinions, but they kind of dominate the conversation. Why do we not hear from more doctors or are there more doctors out there? And you can point us to where to listen to them at. Yeah, there are four major physician groups. One is the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. They're chartered in every state. 
so they have state doctors, AAPS doctors. Uh, they clearly are vocal about vaccine safety and efficacy and early treatment. You have American frontline doctors, frontline critical care consortium. Those are more critical care doctors. Uh, and then you have the Truth for Health Foundation. And that's a blend of doctors, uh, religious leaders, and ethicists. So you have four major doctor groups out there. And, uh, and we do need to hear from more. Uh, there are doctor societies right now that are silent on the vaccines in terms of uh, safety. That includes American Medical Association, American College of Physicians, American College of Pediatrics, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And, and they're going to have to uh, start to voice concerns over safety. More people will be harmed. And these colleges need to do their duty and uh, basically inform their college members. You know, the organizations I just mentioned, though, they tend to be physician lobbyist groups. They're not patient advocates. Advocacy groups. The patient advocacy groups really have to step forward. You know, one of the biggest patient advocacy groups that has not stepped forward is the American Association of Retired Persons, AARP. You know, the vaccine deaths, sadly, are in the elderly. The vaccine deaths are in the same uh, demographic that the respiratory illness deaths are. The elderly are dying of the vaccines. And AARP has been silent on it. Okay. This is by far going to be the hardest question I've had to ask you, but I hope you can answer it. What is your favorite kind of pie? Oh, that's tough. Listen, it's coming into New Year's Day. Uh, we got some great college uh, ball going on. I think I'll go with pumpkin pie with a scoop of vanilla ice cream on top. Okay, pumpkin pie with a scoop of vanilla. All right. Okay, Doc, um, for those who want to follow your work, where do we want to send them to? Um, obviously, I'm, I'm on your uh, in some kind of group or newsletter that you have going on. I know you have Twitter. Where, 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 where do you want to push people to? Well, my listeners will be rejoicing uh, when they found out that I have uh, actually have, uh, I've hired a social media team to help me. I'm a doctor. I'm terrible at social media. I got booted off of Twitter because I double clicked on something and uh, I'm terrible at it. So a social media team is actually getting critical analyses out. I'm on all platforms now. So if you do at Peter McCullough, MD, that will synchronize me across all the platforms. I'll try to answer questions the best I can. I just limited in social media skills at my age. And um, you can follow me directly on America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report. I do a weekly report to the nation. I haven't missed a week yet. I did my New Year's report coming in. Lead analyst from the Trump administration, Paul Alexander, is my guest. I bring on anywhere from one to three guests. I even have a music segment. Anybody who has some music, they think uh, it portrays the the issues of the day. The music segment was started by Eric Clapton. Eric reached out to me about music and, and where we are in terms of the pandemic response. And that was a great idea. He got it going. And um, so America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report. I am the volunteer chief medical advisor for the Truth for Health Foundation. That's one of the four groups I mentioned. That's one of the best places to go for protocols. People say, well, where's the protocol? How do I, how do, I do the iodine spray on my nose? Where do I find the list of doctors um, how do I, what do I do if I have a, a loved one trapped in the hospital and I can't you know, reach the doctors? Truth for Health Foundation, they have a tremendous uh, sets of resources there and you can follow me there. Okay, thank you for all that. And once again, just for pull the curtain back here, this is, we're wrapping this up at 747 on New Year's Eve. So thank you so much for taking this time. I know you have a lot of things to do. Uh, and so we, we really appreciate you making time for us today. Great interview. Thank you, Ryan.